over the summer, I had the opportunity to preach up at a camp in Minnesota, and so we went through the book of Colossians when I was up there, and Colossians 1 became a favorite text of mine during that time. It's just a beautiful text that exalts our Savior, and I just love to share some of the things I learned from the passage with you as we look at that this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 15 through 23. As you turn there, I'm going to ask the Lord for help in understanding the text, and I'll read that for us. God, what a privilege it is to come into your presence. Truly, it is a wonderful opportunity to be able to open up your word and understand the realities of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And as we look at the text today, what we ask you for is help. Our eyes can look and see words, but our hearts cannot pierce the realities of this text without your spirit. And so, God, we ask that you would allow your spirit to work in our hearts to help us to have the understanding of who our Savior is so we can understand His greatness and His glory and so that You would move us to be people who exalt our Savior in all that we do. God, we ask Your blessing upon Your Word. In Your name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Yesterday, uh, the youth group had an opportunity to go down to Indianola Regular Baptist Church, and some of you know Andrew Young, and we had the privilege of being able to help him out with some projects around the church and bless them and reconnect with them. On our way back home, we were traveling in the van. One of the teens asked me, who do you think is the goat? Right? When we ask that question, if you're unfamiliar with athletic terms, goat is the greatest of all time. And so if you're in football, you probably think, you at least have to grapple with the fact that Tom Brady is somewhere in there. Whatever you think of him, Tom Brady has to be considered, in some aspects, a goat. Or maybe in basketball, and I feel like that's a more contentious one, some would think it's Michael Jordan. Right? Some of you have LeBron James up there, and some of you would even put Kobe there. Right? Who is the goat? And what I would call us to think about as we look at this text is, in a sense, we can look at those who we would consider in this life to be the goat. And we can look at them and see that they've accomplished something great in their category and field. And we can think that there's something exceptional about them for what they've accomplished in their career. And truly, we have people we can look to in this life who are great. But as we step back and we look at all time, I would invite you to look and see that Jesus himself would be the one who Paul would lift up as the greatest of all time. 
Literally, there's not quite one person in this world who can exceed what Jesus is and what he has done for us. He truly is the greatest of all time, and that's what I want to look at today as we jump into this text. And as we look here, I want to call us to the fact that God calls us to stand firm in the gospel. What Jesus has done for us in the gospel requires us to stand firm in it, to be solidly rooted in it, to not move from the hope of who our Savior is in all His glory and wonder. The church of Colossae, whom Paul was writing to here in his epistle, were on the verge of being tempted away from the gospel, and they were looking at other things that were given to them. They were looking at things in the world that could sway them from the solid, rooted ground of the gospel and move away to something that wasn't Christ. And as Paul writes to them, he calls them to come back to look at what the gospel is, to see who Jesus, their Savior, is, so that they could see that there's nothing in this world that could compare with the glory and the reality of Jesus Christ and His person and work and what He's done for us. And so by way of starting, as Paul launches into this, instead of attacking the things he was concerned about and what they were going away from, he starts by jumping in and goes right into the reality of, this is the great gift of Jesus Christ that you have. And why would you ever even want to turn away from what he's done for you? And so as we look at how we're supposed to stand firm in the gospel, I think, I think Paul offers us three glorious descriptions of who Christ is that motivate us, that ground us in the very reality of the gospel so that we stand firm in what Jesus has done. This first one is we stand firm in the gospel because Christ rules over all his creation. If you look at how this passage starts in verse 15, you see it says, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ has made the invisible God visible in coming to this world. God alone, who rules and created all things, stooped down and became like us. And he's the very image of who God is. We know who God is because we have seen him in Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's the firstborn over all creation. And that word is used twice here in this passage. We'll see it a little bit later when he describes another description of Jesus. But when Paul says firstborn, he does not mean first in order, as if he was something that was created. He's not first in order like you being first in line to get pizza at Pizza Ranch after you're done here. He's not first in line or first in order. No, Christ is first in rank. He is above all things and rules over all things. Much like we would use the term first lady or someone who is in first place. Christ is first over all things. He is over all creation. And, and why? Why is Jesus the one who is first over all creation? Why is it Him who rules over all things? Why is it He that should be preeminent over creation? And verse 16 explains for us, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. 
I think that's reason enough to be first over all things. He's created everything that we see in this world and everything that we see in the worlds that we cannot. Christ is the preeminent one because he rules over all things as creator. He, as the one who manifested this world into existence, he is the one by whom all things exist. Jesus is our creator. And by, and by that, it puts him over every rule, every throne or dominion or principality or power. Christ rules over those things, over all authority, because he created that authority. He is the one who has spoken this world into existence. And because of that, he is worthy of all glory and honor because he is the preeminent one. He rules this world because he's created it. And if you look there at the end of verse 16, you see the sum total of why this world exists. And it's all things were created through him and for him. The reality is, is that everything in this world that exists and everything that ever will exist and all the things that we can't even see that exist are all for the purpose of Jesus. He is not only the one who created all things, he is the one for whom all things were created. This very world we look at around us was not created for our pleasure, but though that our God is gracious to share that with us. All things in this world were created because he wants the glory and deserves it because he is the one who created it. And all glory goes to him because he has made it. And so every one of us in this room has been given a divine purpose. Not because we found our purpose, but because the one who created us has defined our very existence as for him. Jesus is the purpose of all things, and for him all things exist. But not only that, he also sustains all things. Look at verse 17 here. And he is before all things. So time-wise, Jesus has existed before anything was created. The uncreated one spoke and created the world we see. But not only that, everything consists in him. He's the one who holds this very world together and keeps everything from falling apart into mass chaos. As much as the chaos we see out in the world today, it doesn't compare with the reality of what it could be if Jesus let go of everything. But he himself, being the one who created all things, holds the entire world in his hands and keeps it together, functioning as he wants it to be. Not only has he created everything, he sustains it and undergirds it with his very strength and power so that it makes him the one who rules over all creation. Jesus himself is the creator, and he's worthy of all glory and honor because of that. And as we look at this text, Paul begins to take this aspect of Jesus and brings that to bear on the Colossian situation. Because they're tempted to leave the gospel. They're tempted to walk away. And so he offers them this truth of who Jesus is as creator. Because he wants to draw their minds to the reality that that will help them stand firm. See, the one who created this world has every right to tell us how it works. 
the one who created life as we know it, and we look out and see how our world works, Jesus is the one who is worthy to tell us how it functions. Because he is Lord over all, because he's created all things. In my office at school, I have this Macintosh Plus. I'm not going to call it an old computer because some of you do remember this and I would be, I'd put myself in trouble if I called that old, but we'll say it's a mature computer and very, very nice looking. But I picked this up at a garage sale when I was younger and I, I loved computers growing up. And so I, I picked this up and, and messed around with it for a while, enjoyed that. I had the keyboard and mouse and it worked for the longest time and used that several times. So, but when, it, when I got this computer, it came with a box full of manuals that looked like this full of them. In fact, uh, before I got rid of them, the stack I had was at least a foot and a half to two feet tall of paper manuals that showed how this computer functioned and worked. And the guy who engineered this, Steve Jobs, right, I'm, I'm sure he didn't write the manuals, but as he is the one who created this computer, he has every right to tell us how that worked and to go to the manual to understand it and see how this worked was only, only made sense because he was the one who designed it. And if to understand a small device like that, and to step back and look at our complex world with relationships, with politics, with looking at simply how our lives work, to look at illness and difficulty and the reality that sin is in our life and has broken this world, who else should we go to except the one who designed it? And when our world has gone everywhere and our lives have fallen apart, who else will we go to to write and put them back in their right purpose? And it is Jesus to whom we must flee because he is the one who rules his creation. And so this causes us to step back and we just need to reflect on the fact that I'm really small when it comes to the reality of life. I'm not that big. Jesus who's ruled over all time and spoke this world into the existence. He's the one who everything was created for. And to simply step back and go, wow, I'm really, really, really small. And Jesus is really, really, really great. Is a very, very good place for all of us to be. And stopping and reflecting on that fact will bring in us a humility and an awe Oh, that only someone as great as Jesus can produce in our lives. But we don't only just stand firm because Christ is ruling. We also stand firm because Christ leads his church. Christ is the very head over his own church. Look at verse 18 here. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And so if it wasn't enough that Jesus simply is preeminent over his creation, Paul goes on to say Jesus is also preeminent and great in his church, the new creation that he's formed. He's the head of his very body, the living church across the entire world. He himself rules that church and cares for her. 
He's the very beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's our word again. Christ being first in rank from the dead. And you might look at that and say, well, is Jesus really the first from the dead? Because I remember Lazarus was raised in the Bible, right? Wasn't he the first from the dead? Or, or maybe there were those before who were raised. Aren't they first from the dead? And what I would remind you is that they died. They were raised for a little bit, but they fell away again back to the power of death. But Christ is the first and the only one who has been raised victorious over sin and death and the grave and sin and power and death have no dominion over him anymore because he has come back victorious over the grave. And because of that, because of our Savior who imparts to us our very lives that we have, that gives us the very ground of our hope and what Jesus has done. He himself deserves to be the head of the church because he's the one from whom our life flows. Our very eternal life that we have and the very confidence of hope that one day we will live with him forever is only sustained by the fact that the person we believe in exists forever. He is the head of the body. And because of that, he has preeminence, not only over the very things of life that he has created, but also over the very realities of things that weren't created. Death itself is antithetical to creation. It's the opposite of creation. It's the undoing and destruction of all things. And Jesus said, not only my Lord over the things that I created and touched and made, I'm also Lord of the things that seek to destroy creation. And he goes and proves that I'm victorious over the curse so that he, Jesus, would be preeminent in all things. You look at the reality of this in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. You see, in becoming the head of the church who is exalted and resurrected above every principality and power and authority, how did Jesus get there? Well, he first did that by becoming low, by becoming like us. Jesus himself took on flesh, much like you and I look like. Granted without sin, granted without the, without the, without the realities of our sinful weakness, Jesus comes and takes that on. The fullness of himself, of God, dwelling bodily, in man. In rising to his exalted state, Jesus first descended low to become like us. And the fullness of God dwelt in a person much like you and me. And Jesus was a real, tangible person who lived and walked this earth being fully God and fully man. And becoming low, he brought redemption. And his whole purpose for his existence as fully God, fully man, is seen in verse 20. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. You see, the reality of why Jesus came into this world as flesh and blood was to provide reconciliation to move two things that were opposed to each other and bring them together so that they might have harmony and peace. And what were the things that were at odds with each other? It was this very creation that had fallen under the curse. God Himself 
and creation itself were fundamentally opposed to each other when sin came into the world, and, and God could not look upon this world without looking on it with condemnation. And yet he sent Jesus into this world, and in fact, it pleased him. It pleased God to let Jesus dwell in man and become our very foundation for our redemption so that we might be able to know God. The invisible God became visible in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And not only that, he stooped to reconcile all things through himself. And, and how did he do that? How did he reconcile the very creation he made for his own purposes that went astray and went after its own way? He sends Jesus to come into this world to redeem that creation and bring it back to himself so that he might be able to be preeminent over that. But how did he reconcile that? How did he reconcile creation and God and bring them together? Look at the end of verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. The reality is the way that the God of life reconciled the very creation he made was through his own death. The way that God brought the creation he made for his own purposes and brought it back to himself was through sacrificing his own son. The cross has become the very way, the very pinnacle of how God is going to take creation and bring it back to himself so that in all things, when Jesus returns, that everything is restored back to him and creation cries, he is Lord and bows the knee before him. The cross was the way that Jesus brought redemption for all creation. And one day when he returns, all things in this world will be made right. All things that God has created for his purposes will be reset and placed back for his purposes. And no matter how much illness or pain or broken relationships or difficulties or terrible habits that you might have, God himself will restore that at the end of time when Jesus returns and he will reset creation to be back to the purpose for him and him alone. And every one of our hearts in this room will cry, He is Lord. Not because we're constrained to, but because we finally have achieved the purpose God has created us to do. To glorify Him at the end of eternity. And to that day, we marvel and we look at that and that excites us. Christ has defeated death itself and He will restore those things. And in light of that, even we just have an application for ourselves. If God himself went to great lengths to restore his creation by sacrificing Jesus Christ, how much more do we go and reconcile relationships with those around us? We have the reality of the fact that we need to restore relationships with other people at times. And the very basis and the model and example that we're offered here in Jesus is that we go and we reconcile with others. And we marvel at the fact that God himself came and reconciled me. And he saved me. And he went to great lengths to redeem little Joe from his creation that has gone the wrong way. God has done that for me. He's done that for all of us. We just marvel at that. And this 
idea of reconciliation, I mean, we could kind of think about it maybe a little bit like a magnet. I don't know if you've ever taken these, maybe when you were a kid, and maybe you still do it as an adult, I'm not sure, I haven't done it recently, but you take these, and you take two of them, right, and you can try as hard as you want to make north and north touch, right, and you can try, and you can push it away, and you can push them on the table, and you get close, and then they start to do the, the vibrating thing, and then they flip around and pinch your finger, and then you're like, oh, what was I ever doing that for in the first place, right? So we have, we have magnets like that, right, and there's two polarized forces between creation and between God. And there is a strong force that keeps them away. They cannot touch. They cannot come together. Sinful man cannot approach a holy God. And yet, God has made a way by turning and providing reconciliation. So if we turn, we can come and have relationship with him. And that's exactly where Paul goes next in this text. Not only do we stand firm because Christ rules and because Christ leads this church, we also stand firm in this gospel because Christ sustains his children. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. What a statement after describing our marvelous, glorious Savior. Jesus as ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus as one who has been crucified and head of his church. It was he that we raised our fists against and said, my way. Have you ever thought and dwelt on the fact that you were once a rebel? That you hated God? There is no reality. There is no middle ground in our walk with the Lord. We either love God or we hate God. And the reality is, every one of us, whether you grew up in a Christian home and came to Christ, or whether you came off off the streets and came to know the Lord, both, hated God. And the reality is, we, in our natural state, raise our fists against God, and we hate Him. But the wonderful truth of the Gospel is that God takes fist shakers who raise their fists high and say, not your way, God, but my way. He takes those people and He reconciles them to himself. Look at verse 21, right at the end. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. See, Paul here narrows from a view of Christ reconciling all creation and narrows it right on to us, individuals before God. Not only will one day Christ take all creation and bring it back to Himself, today, even now, He will take individuals and receive them unto themselves and reconcile God and man. And this great Savior who is Creator of all things and the great Savior who is the head of His church need not be someone who be feared and trembled before in the face of our own condemnation for our sins that we've incurred. No, that, that, that God can be a friend. 
because of the death of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Reconciliation is taking enemies and making them friends. And what a privilege for all of us here today to be able to look at this text and say, we know God, not as judge, but as friend. And what a privilege to have this wonderful God of the universe as someone we can personally commune with day to day, together as his church, to know him and please him all the more. And I would be amiss to assume that there are none in this room who are not reconciled, because the reality is some here today don't know Christ. And if you have not been reconciled to Jesus Christ to know Him and walk with Him and to have a relationship restored with the God of the universe and you're no longer one who shakes your fist at the one who created all things, but as one who comes humbly before Him and says, you are my friend and I need you and your grace, you can have that if you turn in faith to this person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a set of beliefs and doctrines. Yes, and those are the guardrails by which the church has been protected for, throughout history. But what Christianity also is, is a relationship with the God of the universe who stooped down low to make himself known to us. And we can know him in Jesus. But here we get to the very meat of what Paul was writing about. In verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, See, he's writing to believers who know God. He's writing to believers who have already been reconciled with God. And in him protecting them, he calls them to say, stand firm. Don't leave the faith. You'll notice that faith there has an article before it. The faith. Paul's not speaking of personal faith that I place in Jesus Christ. He's talking about a body of truth. The faith. As in Christianity, the gospel that has been handed down. And he says, you must stand firm in this truth. And why? Well, where else will we go? Where else will we go to find life? Where else will we go to understand the reality of this world? If the one who created all things came and died to show who he is and to restore me to himself, where else will I go? The one who has authority over all things has the right to tell me how it works. And why would I leave a Savior who came and died for me? Every other religion in the world has some aspect in which we must do something. Jesus, Christianity itself, is the only religion, it's the only belief that Jesus himself has come and died for me. Every other aspect of religion has something you have to serve, something you have to do, something you have to provide. But the reality is our God came and He died to provide for us. Where else will we go? We must stay grounded. We must stand firm because this is the very gospel, the very hope, and there is no other life apart from Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And so if we want hope, if we want to grow until one day be able to stand before Jesus Christ 
holy and blameless and above reproach, as verse 22 says, if we want to offer our lives back to God as useful to Him, we must stand firm in this Gospel. Because one day, we're going to stand at the end of time and we're going to look before our Savior and what we will have to offer is simply, did we stand firm in this Gospel? And if we did, Christ Himself who sustains His children will have engendered in us a holiness, a blamelessness, a maturity, so that when we stand before Jesus, we can offer Him our lives and say, I yielded to you. And we can point to our Savior whom we looked in hope to and point and say, He is the one who accomplished all things for me. That is our only hope. And in, in light of that judgment day that we look to, we look now at our lives and we say, Lord, help me to be holy. Help me to be blameless. Help me to be above reproach. Not for the sake of people looking at me, but for the sake of pointing to you and reflecting the glorious creator of the universe. So that you would be exalted and not me, Lord. That, that, that must be our prayer. That is our very life. And so this text humbles us because of the greatness of our Savior. And so we must not turn away to anything else for hope. We must not look to anything, whether it's rules or routines, feelings, freedoms, possessions, pocketbooks. We can't trust anything except for our Lord and our Savior. He is our hope. And we must rely upon this gospel and we must stand firm in it because there is no other hope. There is no other way for life except Jesus Christ our Savior. A couple summers ago, when I was back up in Minnesota, I worked for a lawn care company, and we went around and we mowed lawns, and we would go and do that. I had never done that before in my life. I'd done our, my parents' lawn. I've, I've pushed a push mower before, but these are these big zero-turn mowers, you know, where you could actually tear up the grass, and you actually go pretty fast in those things. And I had a lot of fun with those. And as we're going along, though, I'm, I'm learning how to, how to mow these huge lawns. There'd be these giant fields that we'd have to mow across. And, and, at, and at first, everyone wants their lawn to look something like this, right? Nice, straight, beautiful, crisp lines. Looks like you own a golf field right on your own lawn. That's what we want, right? When I first started out, you get pushed on the mower and you start driving. As you're going down the road and you're going down the lawn, as you're going, you're looking down here and you're looking along the side, and you're trying to match the line you just cut earlier. As you're doing that, you're looking down there, and you're pushing along, and you're driving. What's going to happen? And pretty soon, you get done, and I turned around, and I looked back. What did I have? This big curve in the middle of the lawn. It didn't look like this golf field. It looked like something else. And uh, it didn't work. And why is that? Well, I had fixed my eyes, and I had looked to something nearby. I looked right down here and I looked at my, my guard, I looked at my wheel, and I lined it up with a cut and I went for that. You want to know what the secret is to making straight lines in your yard? It's to pick something way in the distance and look at that and don't even look down here to see if you're cutting the line. Just pick the line in the distance and go for it. Don't flinch, don't move and just go. And it's amazing. When I did it the first time, I stepped, I looked back, I'm like, wow, I made a straight line. This is awesome. <laughs> it's cool. Right? The reality is, we don't live the Christian life navel-gazing with our eyes fixed on us. We live the Christian life with our eyes fixed on the object of our hope, Jesus Christ, 
our living sacrifice who created this world, who rules his church, and who has sustains his children and comes for us. And my exhortation to you, will you fix your eyes upon this Savior, this person and his work that he's done for us? Will you look to him and run the race with your eyes fixed on him so at the end of life you come back and say, I have stood firm. Let's pray. God, thank you for everything that you have given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we ask for your help in living this life that we may run the race well with full confidence, fixed upon you, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory and honor and power and majesty for all time. In your name, amen.